Namaste, everyone. Welcome to the Charvak Podcast. My guest today is Dr. Wilfred Riley. Dr. Riley is an assistant pro- professor of political science at Kentucky State University. He holds a PhD in political science from Southern Illinois University and has a law degree from the University of Illinois. He's the author of two books, The Hate Crime Hoax and Taboo, 10 Facts You Can't Talk About. He's also part of the 1776 Unites campaign along with the likes of Bob Woodson, Glenn Lowry, Coleman Hughes, and many others. You must have seen, if you're a follower of uh, mainstream media in America, you will see Dr. Riley on the news all the time, whether it's Fox or CNN. I remember one famous debate he had with, if I don't remember, it was Taylor, or I, I don't remember the exact name of the gentleman. But yeah, so that, that, that was something. But I came across Dr. Riley's work through Quillette magazine, and then I read his book. So Dr. Riley, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. From what I've heard, it's uh, significantly influential in India and uh, elsewhere. So I'm, I'm glad to be invited. Well, that's very nice of you. So, Dr. Riley, let's start with the with the 1776 Unites campaign. So I, I came across this in your article in Colette. But but before we talk about the 1776 Unites campaign, so I want you to talk about why did you start it? And it, it, it I remember clearly stating that it was an answer to something that is called the 1619 Project. So could you tell everybody about the 1619 Project and then maybe talk about the 1776 Unites campaign? Sure. So the 1619 Project is an effort from the Times, the New York Times in the United States, to um, change the birthday of America would be a glib way of putting it. But what 1619 attempts to do, um, led by Nicole Hannah-Jones, the African-American academic, is link virtually everything that is unique about the United States of America to some sort of historical oppression. Um, the enslavement of captured Africans most often, also to some extent the defeat of the Native American tribesmen in various wars. But 1619 consists of an entire series of essays. This was a special edition of the New York Times Magazine focused on these alleged links between past historical oppression and characteristics of American life. And this was this was very sweeping. I mean, one of the essays argues that we Yanks tend to be fat because of slavery. Uh, the claim is that uh, historical slavery resulted in the growing of a great deal of sugar cane as opposed to you know, rice or wheat in the southern United States, and that influences our diet today. Um, another essay argues that the legendarily bad traffic in major American cities is due to um, slavery again or to segregation. Um, the dividing of cities into black, white, perhaps Asian in some areas, neighborhoods, caused illogically defined boundaries that produced a bad flow of vehicles through the city. Um, And I will say, and I'm sure we're going to get into this in detail, but a great deal of this is very questionable. I mean, I'm from the city of Chicago, which is in the United States North. Uh, We didn't have legally mandated segregation. We certainly have bad traffic today. That's mostly in our growing exurban suburbs. So, I mean, I'd love to see some quants take on some of these claims. I've looked at a few myself. I've found quite little evidence. But, um, The core of 1619 is an essay by Nicole Hannah-Jones where she makes a number of extremely sweeping claims that the American Revolutionary War was fought to preserve uh, slavery is one of them, I think it's fair to say. Um, Another would be that uh, historically slavery is the primary factor that made the United States wealthy. Um, She says that, to quote, this essentially alone is what made New York City one of the global financial capitals. This built great fortunes for the white people, quote unquote, North and South. 
Um, another claim would be that the civil rights fight in the USA has been spearheaded and to a large extent led almost entirely by black people and other people of color. I mean, at one point in the collection of essays, the phrase we fought alone or something very close to that is used. Uh, again, that's a bit questionable. Black people and members of other minority groups in the USA certainly fought heroically. But when the U.S. Senate passed the Civil Rights Bill, the U.S. Civil Rights Act in 1964, um, I believe 99 of the 100 members were Caucasian. And I think the other guy was Chinese. I'd have to check that. But I mean, certainly there's been substantial comedy across group lines getting these things done. But that is 1619. It's the argument that what makes the USA unique is the historical institution of slavery and to a lesser extent, other institutions of oppression. Um, I'm a member of a group called the 1776 Unites Initiative, which was really set up as the black business and social scientific community, or at least my wing of it, response to some of these claims. And I would say that there are a number of things we say. Um, first, obviously, it's important that both blacks and whites be ready for an honest discussion about race. That's, we're very open about that. I'm pro-black myself, and we can't ignore slavery. But an honest discussion about race would include a discussion of everything from crime in black communities to racism in white communities. That's the sort of conversation among adults that would be useful. That's point one. Point two is that it's very, very important among serious people when we see people in other countries looking at our dialogues, we see the news looking at our dialogues. It's very important to be factual. It's going to sound nonsensical to many people to say that Abraham Lincoln was the worst kind of racist or that yeah. the Revolutionary War was fought to preserve unfreedom. I don't, I don't see much point to saying things like this. It looks a bit silly. So we, we've devoted some time to correcting some of these things. I mean, we're actually working on a curriculum for schools. And again, many people in the group are business people. I mean, ideally, the, the goal would be that schools would buy that. But that there does need to be a, a coherent look at race issues, but that can't just be complaint and anger. That has to focus on heroic black leaders in the past. It has to include an accurate description, good and bad, of the Native American tribes. It has to include white allies that fought alongside positive movements. That's point two. And point three, I think, is just a recognition that, you know, given hard work and reasonable study, it's not that hard to succeed in the modern West. This doesn't deny the reality of racism, anything like that. I've experienced racism myself. Um, but at the same time, you can't help noticing if you look at real data, like the Census Bureau stats for 2018 recently released, um, the wealthiest groups in the United States are Nigerian Americans, East Indian Americans, Japanese Americans, uh, so on down the line, Chinese Americans, Ghanaian Americans. Um, most of those groups, either every group I just mentioned or all but Ghanaians outperformed whites in the most recent year on record. So without denying bigotry, it's valid to say that, you know, given hard work and personal responsibility, it's not very hard to live a successful upper middle class life in the USA. People regularly come to the USA from countries where cars are something of a luxury item like Vietnam and outperform both American whites and blacks, bluntly. So the question is, what are the skills there that might be useful for kids of all races to learn that would improve our performance? I mean, we've fallen from second to, I believe, 31st in the world in science over the past 40 years. And I, I think it's, it's just silly to say that's because of ethnic conflict. We've always had ethnic conflict. But in the past, members of all the groups involved could read science books. So we need to return to that to some extent. I mean, there hasn't been a man on the moon from the USA in a while. 
So point three is what actual development, what actual training could be useful to people as opposed to some of this uh, racial plaint? So that is 1776 versus 1619. Hopefully without rambling here, but the 1619 idea is that all unique characteristics of the USA or most of them are due to historical ethnic conflict and specifically the oppression of blacks. 1776 says, well, we need to talk honestly about that, but that is simply not reality. I mean, many things, including high-end legal immigration and our glorious victory in the Civil War, made America what it is. So let's have a real conversation about this that's suitable for being taught in the schools and so on down the line. So would it be accurate to say that the difference between the 1619 project and the 1776 initiative is actually a world uh, uh, a worldview clash where one one project actually comes from a critical race theory uh, angle where everything is white privilege and everything is white complicity and and you know the you know the drill it, it just stems from the oppression uh, uh, ideology and the 1776 uh, project would be something that comes from the view of the uh, liberal uh, Pro, the liberal worldview where everybody's an individual and we need to you know promote the individual doing it would would that be a fair understanding if i from what i've uh, heard from you yes i think that's extremely fair i'll also note here that i think and this is probably because a lot of white south asian and east asian scholars don't want to get canceled quote unquote but i also think that critical race theory has gotten an extremely kind of soft hand from the quantitative community in the united states I mean, these are empirical claims that are being made. So the claim of um, SRT, systemic racism theory, or CRT, crit, critical race theory, is essentially that gaps in group performance are almost invariably due to hidden racism and racism in some real sense of that word within systems. Um, Dr. Ibrahim Kendi, if I have that correct, says there are really only two options. You can believe in the inherent inferiority of groups such as blacks, or you can believe that as hard as it might be to believe this, the system is somehow racist. There's hidden racism in there that we've got to winkle out, and that causes these gaps. The issue with this is that as Tom Soule and a ton of other people, uh, J.D. Vance outside the social sciences and Hillbilly Elegy, Amy Chua writing from an Asian American perspective, just top scholars have pointed out, there's a third position here, which is correct, which is that social and cultural and what you could call contextual variables vary among groups. And that explains most of the gaps that crit attributes to racism. So, I mean, there, there are two basic problems from a quant perspective with a crit perspective, hopefully not throwing out too many academic acronyms here. But I mean, the first is simply that if you move the conversation beyond blacks and whites, as I just did, you find the awkward fact that nearly as many minority groups outperform American Anglo Anglophone whites as underperform them. Uh, again, wealthiest group in the country measured by household or personal income is East Indians. So well done. I mean, I assume there's a large East Indian audience here. I mean, many um, branch groups within my own Nigerians, West Africans do extremely well. The Japanese do extremely well. So I don't see how critical race theory can even attempt to explain that. And except for throwing out the word model minority, they don't as far as I can tell. A second point is that at the even simpler level of an individual scholar's regression analyses, if you adjust for any variables other than race, most of the gaps that crit attributes to race simply vanish. Um, Dinesh D'Souza on the right and June O'Neill on the left, I mean, obviously two 
you know, contradictory political positions, most likely there. Yeah. But both both did this back in 1995. They looked at um, income for black versus white Americans. And they found that the income for black Americans is about 85% of the income for white Americans. We've closed the gap a bit, but that's still true. You see 100 to 87 cent gaps in most states. But the point that they made was that you can't just attribute that to racism. You have to adjust for age. Um, the most common age for a black man, as I often say, is 27. For a white man, is nearly 60. It's 58. I mean, obviously, a 60-year-old executive is going to out-earn a 25-year-old individual just starting out in business. You have to adjust for region. I mean, salaries, frankly, are quite low for both blacks and whites in a state like Mississippi or Arkansas, but far more blacks, far more African-Americans per capita live in those or proportionally live in those states. You have to adjust for test scores. I mean, you can say there's a class element there, but it's still a bit silly to expect someone who gets a 960 on the SAT to get into the same sort of top college as someone who gets a 1340. So if you adjust for just those variables, and I believe a number of years of education, so not quality, nothing to do with group differences in school, just staying in school, getting the sheepskin. If you adjust for those four things, the black-white income gap almost entirely disappears. And again, I don't see a critical race response to that. I mean, if your claim is that we may not have found it yet, but we all know there's hidden racism in these systems. It's racist to say there's not. And this is going to limit all people of African descent or all people of Middle Eastern descent or whatever. Then logically, you should assume that a Nigerian chief who immigrates to the United States and a black American should have roughly the same income or the same set of life outcomes True. because they're experiencing white racism, the only thing that matters. And what we find is that that's absolutely not true. I mean, one of those groups uh, will have, on average, one of the lower incomes in the country, ahead of Hispanics and natives generally. But given the time African-Americans have been here, one of the lower incomes, the other group is the richest in the country, second richest after East Indians, I believe. So there, there's no logical way to say that that is due to racism. There's no logical way to say that West Indians or West Africans who are, at least in the second case, the original black people, you know, the Ashanti warriors and kings and so on come from that region of the world, um, are experiencing less anti-black racism than I am with my, you know, light brown skin tone. So the, all of this is something that's rarely brought up in this dialogue. And I think, I think in quantitative science, we've really given critical race theory a bit of a break on this. And hopefully with 1776 and some of these initiatives, that, that's ceasing. So, Dr. Riley, I just wanted to talk uh, about one specific idea where uh, uh, I wanted to connect this uh, entire issue to. So I remember reading an article. Uh, I've not read the study. I'll be very honest, but it was a study on crimes and uh, punishments. I, it was something to do with crime and punishments, uh, race, uh, uh, relating to race. And it was by Roland Fryer, if I remember correctly. Yes. And and I remember uh, uh uh, Roland Fryer saying that he agrees that blacks are more likely to be stopped uh, and harassed. Uh, and when it came to lower crimes, let's say if a white guy and a black guy, African-American or a Caucasian would uh, commit the similar crime, uh, say a smaller drug related crime, the probabilities of an African-American being arrested or being heckled or being harassed are far more than uh, a Caucasian. But when it comes to actual violence or murder or being shot by cops, the number changes completely. But don't you think that itself lies a problem there or we have an indication of there uh, that there is a problem which needs to be solved like the war on drugs has had a, a disproportionately larger impact on the african-american community which would lead to some lingering effects on their life and their careers 
Well, I think there are a lot of things there. I mean, first of all, as you mentioned, Fryer found that when you get into the higher uh, levels of police violence, like shootings, and I believe beatings, um, certainly shootings, whites were more likely to be targeted by the police because there was less of a sense of the media would come after you and so on. So I don't mean to be glib, but there is a question. Would you rather be slightly more likely to be stopped by the police or slightly more likely to be killed by the police? I mean, the groups that were most often killed by the police, when I've looked at this on a county-by-county county basis, were almost certainly poor whites and recent Latino immigrants. So, I mean, this is one of many situations where there are gaps between racial groups, but they really cut both ways. Um, so, I mean, as a Black man, I experience racism, but I also experience affirmative action. Overall, I would say that there is rather little difference between my day-to-day -day life, if I want to play some basketball or some golf today or cut a media spot or write an article, than the life of my white friends. I sometimes more in this column, sometimes less in this column. And that, that I think is what Fryer found. And that's why that article became viewed as so heterodox, by the way. I mean, he's a very polite scholar. I've met Roland Fryer, a gentleman, a good academic. I mean, I don't think he wanted to say anything, you know, firebrandish in either direction. So he certainly says, well, sometimes the whites, sometimes the blacks. But the basic point of that study is that none of the groups were overrepresented to a dramatic degree when it came to these police outcomes. I believe black people were 16% more likely to be handcuffed uh, white, and I, I have read this, I read this a couple of days ago, whites were 24% more likely to be shot. Blacks were 18% more likely to be shoved or cursed at. I forget whether those figures come before or after the adjustments he makes for region behavior and so on, but they're, they're not large differences. Now that said, the broader question of as a black guy, regardless of who's more likely to get slapped alongside the head by the police, are you more likely to at least some extent to be harassed by the police than a white guy? Yes. Yeah, the answer is yes. I mean, I, I think that there are, and this is an obvious statement, there are forms of at least residual racism in the USA and every other country. Now, I will say, though, that when we get into honest conversations again, because, you know, again, an honest conversation about race incorporates white racism, black crime, wealth among groups, white crime, for that matter, crime's not strictly a black enterprise by any means. Um, when we start talking honestly about this, the picture muddies a little bit. So the obvious, when you talk about how policing's done in the United States, I'm primarily a political science professor, but I'm on mm -hmm. the actual active duty roster for our criminal justice department that I can teach courses. I'm considered qualified to teach about law, about policing, so on. And if you look at how policing is done in the United States, since about 1987, we haven't just been sending police into black or Italian American neighborhoods to harass the locals and piss off liberals. That's not how it works. I mean, there's a process called CompStat where you essentially have to send officers to those areas that have the highest reported rates of violent crime. And when officers get into those areas, yes, they engage in what might be called harassing behavior. They pat down young men looking for weapons. They do uh, drug stops. They do vehicle stops. Then they stop people from doing the things that if you've ever been in a slum neighborhood in the USA or presumably India or anywhere else, make living there very difficult. Urinating on the street, riding bicycles down a packed stretch of pavement. So the cops very definitely in New York or Chicago or these world cities are doing this kind of thing in poor neighborhoods, which are going to be 60 to 70 percent African-American. The question is whether that and that accounts almost entirely in every study I've ever read on McDonald, Fryer, so on down the line, work on the left for the differences between blacks and whites in terms of police encounter. So th this is not just the police tracking down black men along lone stretches of highway. They're almost as likely to stop white guys in that situation, actually. Um, mm -hmm. This is the police being very densely concentrated in these violent urban neighborhoods, more than half of which are black. Um, the question about whether that's legitimate to some extent comes down to crime rate. 
And the unfortunate answer is that it often is. If you look at the African-American crime rate in the United States, and in this case, I'm relying on what's called the Beru of Justice Statistics Criminal Victimization Report. You can find it under that name. If you Google BJS PDF Criminal Victimization 2018, 19, 17, of course, you'll find this report. This is based on the reports to police departments and to separate third-party interviewers by victims of crime. This is some of the best social science that's out there. If you look at this report, the black crime rate is 2.4 times the white crime rate. Now, it's not that simple. I mean, if you break out some of the states of the South, you have a very high white crime rate. I live in Appalachia now. Uh, Asians have about a third the crime rate of whites. So we don't, we don't come to some silly alt-right conclusion like minorities are the problem. But the simple reality is that in urban areas, the black crime rate is two to three times the white crime rate. So you're going to see two to three times as many police in these black areas. And that almost entirely explains, in my opinion, of course, scholars will disagree about everything, but the 200 to 300% overrepresentation of black people among people stopped by the police. So if you look at um, marijuana charges, for example, we frequently hear that white and black kids smoke weed, quote unquote, at the same level, but black kids are four times more likely to be arrested. That's true. But if you want to look at that seriously, you have to adjust for two variables. One, are people indoors when they're doing drugs? If you go to a large urban area, I mean, again, I was born on the south side of Chicago, grew up in Wicker Park, the North District Arts, the North Side Arts District. You'll very frequently see people sitting on a porch smoking blunts. Those people are going to be more likely to encounter the police than people that are inside a suburban home smoking blunts. Um, so, of course, both races, all races smoke blunts. The question is where? Um, a second component is, you know, again, what's the surrounding crime rate in the neighborhood? So if you have 2.4 times as many cops exactly reflecting the crime rate, you would expect 2.4 times as many stops. When you adjust for that basic variable of are you urban and thus outdoors and that other basic variable of are there 2.4 times as many police around, I either guess or know going study by study that almost all the racial gaps close. And we find that to very often be the case. So an important point here. I absolutely recognize the legacy of past racism. We didn't desegregate in the USA until 1954. I mean, 10 years after we beat the Nazis, that's an embarrassing fact. I absolutely recognize that legacy nine years. But in causing things like a concentration of poverty, housing in black communities, for that matter, in Appalachia, to some extent, in southern white communities, that's real. Um, on the other hand, when people argue for bigotry today, when you hear these terms like white gays, what people are very often saying is that if you took an East Asian guy, a Nigerian guy, and a white guy, the two minority guys today would be disadvantaged relative to a white guy beginning from the same social class position, going to the same B school, and so on down the line. There is no evidence of that whatsoever. What there is evidence of is displacement of people from the positions they would have occupied if it weren't for the old clashes. So yeah, I think... And the simplest solution to that, to me, is to help the poor. We can't single mm -hmm. out the black poor and say, well, to hell with the white and Hispanic poor, which is essentially how some reparations models would work. We need to recognize that things like demilitarizing the police in large urban areas would disproportionately help black people, but would help everybody. But for now, we can't just point the finger at the police and say, well, they're, they're unfairly harassing black people. The reality underlying that is that the neighborhoods that have 2.5x as much crime are often black neighborhoods. All right, so, All right, so Dr. Dr. Riley, I, I, I wanted, wanted to, to talk, talk about, about this, this a little, little bit, bit, little bit further. 
So when we look at, uh, uh, you just mentioned this point where you said we have to look at the problem of poverty. It doesn't matter who's the poor person. Now, let me share a bit of my experience from working in India. So uh, as I was telling you offline too, that I have uh, the experience of working in some uh, slums in Mumbai where I'm from. And obviously I have worked with uh, villages uh, on a project that was a central government, uh, federal government uh, scheme with where every member of parliament is supposed to adopt a few villages so the villages we picked were uh 100% scheduled caste and scheduled tribe villages as uh, people may I, I mean i don't know how many people in the united states of america india has a caste system where there are some people who are in the lower caste and some people who are in the upper caste so the lower castes have been historically marginalized uh, by our society and what we did in after we got our independence from the british was we came up with a reservation system like, like a a quota. It was where different castes would get uh, X number of jobs in the federal government and the state governments uh, from top to bottom. And in my experience, uh, whether it's my work in rural India or in the slums in Mumbai or in my experience of seeing the journey of uh, our country, uh, albeit we are not as old as a democracy as the United States of America. But in my experience, when you create such opportunities, like reservations, or I think it could be loosely called affirmative action in America, although I think they're slightly different, affirmative action and reservations. But it, it, it has tangible effects on those sections of society. So I see lower castes in India coming up in a big way. They, 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 they feel like they're part of the system. They feel like they're part of the larger na Indian narrative. Now, uh, why would but when I, and, and this is my experience, I could be totally wrong, but whenever I used to go to the United States of America, I mean, I've been there many times in my life. So, and I would talk about this with my friends in general, whether I was studying in Canada or whether it was with my friends, uh, extended family in, in the, the United States and Canada. And I would propose this idea. I was like, why don't you guys actually create a system where let's say in, in America, historically you have, uh, the native population and uh, the African-Americans, which have a history of oppression or being oppressed by uh, by a certain uh, certain set of people. So why don't you create some sort of system where you actually create a reservation or a quota system for there? And I would see a huge amount of uh, you know, pushback even when I would suggest that. So why do you think there is this uh, pushback where I think in India it's actually helped the lower castes a lot? I think there's a lot there. I mean... So if you want to get into this, first of all, India's caste system is very different from the USA's class system. And please correct me if I'm wrong about this. But my understanding is that the three Indian top castes, um, Brahman, Kshatriya, and is it Vaishya? Vaishya, yeah. Vaishya. Um, those make up a fairly small percentage of the population, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that the Indian system in the West, we would just have called that structured feudalism. I mean, the Indian system was essentially that you had your priests, you had your lords and fighting men, and then you had your merchants. And yeah. everybody else, unless you want to talk about that brutally oppressed group of quote-unquote untouchables, but everybody else was essentially a peasant and occasional fighter or a craftsman, a small shop owner. That's the system that the Western countries, and for that matter, the stable African countries had for many, many years. I mean, you had the lord and the king, you had the chief priest and his priests, you had you know, six or seven far-faring adventurers, maybe in a good-sized town, and then you had everybody else. Mm -hmm. And I think that to some extent saying that in India, I believe it's 87% of the population, something like that, would have to have access to, say, 40% of the job slots. I mean, I think that that's 
a good thing. I, I, can't, I can't imagine too many people opposing that. The U.S. case is a little different in that there are two questions. I mean, first of all, I don't oppose all affirmative action. I think you make a good case for um, African-Americans and Native Americans specifically. But there are a lot of questions that come up. I mean, first of all, under the Baki case in the United States, actual direct quotas, which are the most sensible way of running an affirmative action program, are not legal. So most of our affirmative action programs tend to be based around vague and ephemeral ideas like we want a sense of diversity. And these become fairly irritating to people for a bunch of reasons. Um, a second reason, I think, is just racism to some extent, but perhaps more practically put strategic interest. There's a much smaller group of people that are affected by affirmative action and the gaps in admission needed to truly equalize the percentage of say Native Americans in college tend to be very large. And so you get a backlash. A third issue with us in terms of affirmative action is the question of who the programs apply to. So the current standard in the United States is that if you are a minority and you're not an East Asian, essentially, you benefit from affirmative action. Um, the program for most of the major universities in my state would say something along the lines of preference may be given to African-Americans, Hispanics, Native Americans, you know, all immigrants falling into these groups, et cetera. And in practice, that means that the affirmative action admissions advantage, if you're Hispanic applying to the University of Illinois or the University of Kentucky, is nearly as large as it is, if not as large as it is, if you're African-American. Um, Nigerians and similar incoming immigrants from very successful countries would also receive affirmative action. So in the USA, there's a lot of backlash to this because we're not talking about a program that's benefiting 90% of the country to some extent, which I think is almost always ethical. We're talking about a program that's benefiting a selected 30% of the country, maybe, at the expense of a 70% that includes most of the poorest people. And in a situation where we've explicitly excluded the most logical way of doing it, which is quota system. So the short answer is just, it's a complex mess in the USA. Um, that said, I don't object to affirmative action. Um, as a higher educator, I find that people often get very preachy about affirmative action, saying things like people must earn their spots in this U, you know, that we don't do that. Yeah. The, the problem with that is that that's not how most people get into college. Um, when mm -hmm. I think of my University of Illinois, I mean, we have an incredible amount of special admit programs, as they're called in the USA. Um, we have legacy programs, for example, which in practice benefit mostly rich whites. The idea of legacy programming is that you get a major advantage applying to a college if your father or especially grandfather went there. And I suppose today, mother, grandmother, of course. But I mean, the obvious point here is that if you are someone whose grandfather went to the University of Mississippi, you're a rich white guy. There's no doubt of that. That, that was the entire student body population 66 years ago. So, I mean, we have a massive athletic program at most universities, including everyone I've worked at. So, I mean, perhaps 10% of the students will be athletes admitted under some kind of special mention. Um, not that all athletes require that, but it's usual. We have in-state advantages and county-by-county county advantages fought for by local politicians and so on. So I do think there's an element of hypocrisy to saying, well, we need to get rid of any program that treats students unfairly and then focusing specifically on the one that helps poor Hispanic kids. But those are the reasons that I've given for objection to affirmative action. I mean, the question is who should receive it. The question is about the size of the gaps. 
The question is, why don't we benefit the poor in general? Again, in America, 70% of Americans are in the quote unquote traditionally dominant racial group, yeah. as opposed to 10% or 15% in the forward caste in India. And many of them are the poorest people in the country. I mean, I live in Appalachia and it is or within 30 minutes of Appalachia. And it's shocking the level of poverty in some of these small towns coming from a middle class black community. I mean, so our current affirmative action system doesn't adjust for that. And there are the other issues I've brought up. Um, two other things that are worth noting. My ideal program would be essentially class based affirmative action, which wouldn't be very difficult to do at all given the creepy level of data that every institution, including top universities, now has on people. Um, the old idea was that this would be very difficult, but right now we could simply look at the address of each student that applies and then pull up Zillow and look at the average wealth of homes in that neighborhood, which would avoid the issue of individual parents lying on their taxes or something like that. Just look up the wealth of the area and give 20 to 50 points based on the level of poverty in poor areas. And obviously that would benefit minority students. I mean, the majority of applicants in Kentucky from our urban areas that come from poor districts would be black. Um, and depending on where you're recruiting students, you could mix in a certain number of lower income white students by looking at applicants from the west of the, the east of the state. I mean, so that sort of thing, I think, would be probably the best way to approach affirmative action. Like, are you poor? When you apply, if we now use this technology to determine the exact wealth of the area in which you live, will we give you some extra points if you're from a poor area? I, I don't see any reason that wouldn't work at all. And it would benefit African-Americans, but it would also benefit the poor whites, the Asian immigrants, so on, that are now often at a disadvantage. Um, the real issue with affirmative action, and I think class-based affirmative action would avoid some of this because you actually would be taking on students that had been structurally disadvantaged, who could then be aided by tutors and so on. But an issue with affirmative action now, where many of the people you're admitting are middle-class kids that just did badly on the test, is that it correlates with the extremely high dropout rates. This is the big problem with AA, getting away from our conversation about why people, why white people don't like it, which I think is fairly obvious. The big problem from a minority executive perspective is that the kids don't graduate. There's an entire book about this, a Sander and Taylor 2012, where they look at the size of these affirmative action called mismatch, where they look at the size of these affirmative action preferences in the Big Ten, or the Ivy League, um, you know, the Pacific Ten. I'm using the conference names with the elite universities in the USA. And you're often talking about 300 or 330 points and that none of the students admitted to Princeton are going to be bad. But if the average SAT score, SAT board is a 1485, and you're letting in Hispanic students with an 1180, there's virtually no chance of those students competing in the elite majors at Princeton. That's just not how it works. I mean, they're either going to be worked half to death studying, or more likely, they're going to switch their major to something like theoretical gender analysis and graduate with an A minus, um, but then not be employable. Um, it would be much, much, and if you look at the graduation rates for elite schools, I mean, you very much see this. If you compare Berkeley, Notre Dame, even my own University of Illinois, but certainly Harvard, Princeton, um, the graduation rates for whites and blacks, you very often see an 80% as versus a 49%. Um, and that reflects the fact that there's this massive gap in student admissions. I don't think anyone denies this. In the legal profession, which was my first 
not really love, I guess my first arranged marriage would be more appropriate. It was assumed in my family, I'd go to law school and get a job. I went to law school and then got offered a PhD. But I mean, in the legal profession, the, um, the bar passage rate for minority students is substantially below that for the bar passage, substantially below the bar passage rate for white students. And the one correlate that predicts this, you're talking about an R squared of 90% is entering LSAT score. So I don't think it makes much sense to take someone who has a solid 155 on the LSAT and perhaps should attend the University of Texas or a top flight school, but put them into Harvard where they may very well not join a study group, where they're going to be behind the curve for most of the exams, or where they're going to graduate with a B minus or a C plus average, and then perhaps struggle to pass the bar because of that lack of comedy and that lack of support while you're in school. So that, I think, is the real issue with affirmative action, that it hurts many of the kids that go in under the auspices of these programs. And again, I think a class-based system would help with that pretty substantially. So Dr. Riley, here's my question. Then I would actually like uh, to ask you a follow-up question. So let's take a scenario. I'm just creating a hypothetical scenario. Let's say there are two kids, one African-American, one Caucasian white kid, and both come from a barely similar low-income class uh, uh, setup. But here's the thing. So how do we calculate for... Or do you think this is a fair calculation when we calculate the multiple variables that uh, that influence a kid's life and uh, a kid who is actually getting uh, educated? Don't you think that the, the variable of the historical burden of slavery has to play some role in the entire calculation? Don't you think uh, if we were to say that a, a, a lower class, a lower income group, when I mean to say lower income group, white kid and a lower income group, black kid, would be uh, in the same position because don't you think the historical baggage of the African-American uh, community has to create a much harder roadblock for them? I mean, uh, going back to the Roland Fryer example where, I mean, it's the similar thing, right? So don't you think, uh, considering that, I know it's very hard to put it down in a number and a variable analysis, but don't you think it counts uh, for what it's worth? Well, I think that, so there, there are two different things. I don't deny at all that the legacy of slavery has put Black Americans in a worse position than we would be in had we arrived as successful Nigerian-style immigrants. That's not disputed by anyone in social science except for a few racists. The question is whether if you take a working-class Black kid and a working-class white kid, there's more than a few points difference in terms of how they're treated. Um, I would say the answer to question two is no, just as the answer to question one is obviously yes. So if you're looking at a working class white kid and a working class black kid, and let's take the specific city of Frankfort, Kentucky, which is where I live. Um, I don't think that there are going to be major gaps that exist for the black kid, except maybe the criminal justice system at the margins that do not exist for the white kid. If you're talking about single parenthood, if you're talking about poor diet, if you're talking about frequency of violence in their neighborhoods, frequency of drug use in their neighborhoods, um, perhaps dating a quote-unquote promiscuous partner very early on in life, which can run the risk of making you a 16-year-old father. I think those, almost anything, automobiles, skateboarding, accident injuries, almost all of those would be the same for the black kid and the white kid. The only difference is that there would be proportionately more black kids living in that neighborhood because of past racism. I think that's where the difference comes in. But in the modern world, if you so I actually did this. I haven't gone through the full you know, internal review board, getting this done and doing 5,000 surveys. So I won't describe it as one of my major projects yet or anything. 
But there's a fairly good study of quote unquote privilege um, that was designed by, as I recall, some Yale grad students. This actually ran on the BuzzFeed website of all places for a year or so. The data is still available out there. And I've given a modified version of this to people, to students in my classes, for example, and so on to see how they perform. And the questions on here range from, uh, do you know what frequent flyer miles are? To have yeah, you ever had an unpaid internship? Uh, have you ever been beaten in a fight by more than two people? I thought that was interesting. I have growing up in a working class neighborhood. The percentage of even males that say this is less than one in five. So a, a very good metric of privilege exists. I've given this to people. And what you find is that when you do the multivariate regression that we both know how to do and that you just mentioned, the effect of race on privilege does exist, but it's about one to two points. I've seen it as high as three. But with everything else adjusted for the effect of being black in the hood versus white in the hood, Irish or whatnot, three points, two points. Um, the effect of class was 40 plus points. So on this scale, a rich guy is going to get an 80 plus. I mean, just think of questions. Did you have a car in high school? A poor guy is going to get an extremely low score. You know, and there are questions that have multiple, you can go between say one and 10, but like what age did you start working? I mean, that's a question where you can have an eight-year difference between people. That's my most recent version of this, by the way. So the original designers bear no blame for that one. But I mean, just essentially, I think what I said is pretty self-explanatory. There's a nearly 50-point gap based on class. There's a two-point gap based on race in these multivariate models. And one thing that I found fascinating is that so many other variables that we don't think about had an influence. I mean, in at least one run of the survey, we saw an effect or I saw an effect for sex. It is still harder to be a woman. That seems to be an actual impact much more significant than the things whites and blacks fight about. This is consistent across black women, white women. It is harder to go into business and get an executive job as a woman. I don't think anyone even disputes that. It's harder to go to a tough high school as a woman when you think of some of the things that might happen there. Um, it's harder to be gay. Again, I don't see why this would be anyone would disagree with that, even in light of the white, black, Asian conversation. It's substantially difficult to be a gay man in an urban area. I suspect this would be as true in India or most other places in the USA, if not more so. Um, yeah. It's difficult to be a member of a religious minority. We've seen harassment of Muslims and even Jews since 9-11. And just so on down the line. I mean, um, there's a, obviously something that's very significant that we don't normally think about are the individual variables. Um, how would you perceive, because you can't put an IQ test on the thing, but how would you perceive your performance in school, your attractiveness, your physical fitness? All those have an effect, and the effect would be much greater if you actually had a metric for IQ or body fat content or something on there, most likely. So how do you look, act, behave? What's your level of aggression? Um, things you'd never expect, like number of siblings, i.e. birth order, urban, rural, are you from a big city where all the opportunities are present to at least some extent, even if it's difficult to get to them? Or are you from a tiny whistle-stop town? That certainly affects your level of privilege, quote-unquote. So what I'm saying here is that nobody denies, again, some residual racism. And certainly, certainly nobody denies that the great conflicts of the past reduced more Black people to poverty. That would be silly to deny. But when you look at performance on an actual metric like this one, we find that class and a bunch of other things have a much greater impact than race. And at least I find that there's very little racial impact at all today when you adjust for the different metrics for class. So no, I mean, to answer your question, I don't think that some white guy walking through a trailer park carrying his skateboard over his arm, pit bull on a leash, is going to be treated dramatically differently by girls or by the police or by his teachers in school than the equivalent black guy. 
I think that the issue is that there are more black guys in that position because of history. All right. So I want to narrate a small conversation that I had with a a professor and a friend of mine who who was telling me one day that, uh, and this is in connection to, because I want to connect to what's happening in America right now with the the protests uh, across the country. And, you know, it's just, uh, so this is from where I come from. So my, my experience of what's happening in America is either social media, or maybe we get a curtailed version of CNN uh, in, in India. We don't get Fox News in India. We get CNN, which is the international CNN or the international version of BBC over here. Uh, whatever little Fox News we get is either through YouTube or Tucker Carlson's uh, t- uh, tweets or or videos that, that might come occasionally on my on my Twitter timeline. But still, I try to understand what's happening. So a friend of mine once said that, uh, you know, one of the biggest reasons after independence, we actually did not burst into flames, especially with the lower caste coming up and basically, uh, as I say, shit hitting the roof was because we corrected that historical wrong immediately and we gave them those reservations and they became a part of the mainstream narrative in India where they felt they were part of the society and society valued them as much. Now, considering what's happening in America, obviously, I don't want to revisit the affirmative action thing, but but what is this chasm in American society then, Dr. Riley? When I look at it, I look at, uh, and again, I, I, I'm with you on the, the Friar reports. I actually agree with you. But then why why do you think what's happening in America right now where uh, they don't seem to be drawing a line as to what statues they're supposed to take down? Uh, I was just uh, reading somewhere where somebody had joked, maybe Mount Rushmore or whatever, where, when you have all those precedents out there and they're like, somebody wrote an article, even that should be taken down. Then Abraham Lincoln is a problem. Jefferson is a problem. And from whatever I've heard or read uh, through my little researches, I thought these were American heroes. So where has American society failed or it's uh, from my perspective, uh, or do you think it's a little too overblown? Well, I think that now, again, I mean, obviously there are riots in every major society from time to time. India's seen some ugly ones. China is going through a, a definitely a tense time right now with Hong Kong and what they consider the overseas possessions, which the overseas possessions dramatically disagree on. So, I mean, in, a, in five years, the USA, China and India will all still be there as great powers. I don't I don't see a lasting impact of taking down the statue of Stonewall Jackson in a public park to some extent. I mean, cities have had mobs as long as there have been cities. Um, So I I don't really know what the impact of this really will be. I do think that, so first, obviously, again, I, I think the one point, not really a point of tension, I think we largely agree on it, but the one question that often comes up in these conversations is, do you think there's a lot of racism today? And my answer to that as a black business person is no, practically. I mean, quite likely one in 10 whites you meet, maybe Caucasians you meet, maybe a racist. But there are entire programs like the Civil Rights Act and our affirmative action laws designed to counter that. So I have not seen that as a significant problem in my life. Um, I interact with the 90% of people that aren't bigots and recognize that there is an extremely quick legal remedy if you actually in education and business in any serious environment run into racism. Um, so I don't think there's a great deal of this bigotry today in the sense that's often brought up. But as I said, I agree with you that obviously the oppression and conflict of the past produced things like some of the pre-existing wealth gaps that we see among groups. The question is, if that continues today, why are East Indians and Nigerians and the Japanese the richest people in the country? And no one's ever been able to practically answer that for me. But um, so 
In terms of has the USA not kept its promises to the lower class or something like that, I think that's arguable. I, I just don't think it's necessarily racialized. But if you look at the mobs in the streets in the recent post-George Floyd riots, I mean, they're extremely diverse. I mean, you saw blacks, whites, Hispanics, and some of the things that people were saying, you know, the police can be brutal. You know, I, I don't have health care and I'm 27. Um you know, there's there's an extremely high rate of violence in my neighborhood, whether that's a black or poor white neighborhood. Why do you police not seem to protect us rather than fight with us? I think a lot of those are legitimate issues. Um, again, I don't think setting a statue of Abe Lincoln, the man who freed the slaves on fire, is the solution to that. But yeah. one, I don't think that this is going to be a very long term issue. Rioting tends to flare up during hot summers and times of poverty and then die down. We just saw the entire coronavirus crisis in the USA and globally. That's point one. Uh, point two, are there some underlying questions? Yeah. Just to say three things from, quote unquote, the left, I favor national health care, I favor legalizing drugs, and I favor demilitarizing the police. I don't see a reason in the world. All three of those things couldn't be done, phased in over 10 years. And I think that would that would cause a lot of the issues here to die down. Now, that said, now that we accept that some of these issues are legitimate, one big group that has to come in for some punishment here is the U.S. media. Um, who in most long form podcasts I've kicked around for a bit. And by the way, this is a much better format than mainstream broadcast television for communicating these issues. Oh, I um, agree. Yeah, I mean, you've mentioned I've done Fox News. The general format for something like that is it would be like me as center right guy, Rush Limbaugh equivalent on the right, and then Cornell West equivalent on the left. And a producer would literally say something like, go to start a three minute segment and you're expected to out shout the other man about your, your ideas and you know, all this. I mean, it, that's not necessarily very productive. And I think that this environment where you have a uh, Fox, although a good relationship with them, but where you have Fox on one side, Rachel Maddow on the other, that's not ideal for the communication of real information. And it's going to get worse before it gets better. I mean, there's a new TV network named OAN starting up in the United States. That's looking at purchasing major broadcast. Um, their whole pitch is that Fox is too liberal. I mean, their hosts are people like, uh, who's the guy from the internet? Posobiec, I think Cernovich might be on there. Bongino, I mean, former US operators and spies. So that's gonna be interesting to watch. I mean, that might be like watching some elements of uh, Arab world or Turkish media in terms of attachment to the government. But I mean, when you get that OAN versus MSNBC dynamic, you are getting a lot of questionable information being purveyed, if we're being frank. And I think that this is one of the reasons why there's so much anger. Like a lot of the anger that's out there on the streets on both left and hard right is motivated by things that aren't real. This is very, very important. I mean, so when I was prepping for one of those Fox debates, and before that, as I wrote my papers, I looked at the actual number of people that are killed by the police in a typical year. And we're looking at innocent people here. We're looking at unarmed people here. If you're waving an AK-47 at the police, they can shoot, in my opinion. But a uh, total number of unarmed people killed by the police in 2019 uh, was 50. No, 56. Uh, the total number who were black was 15. That includes men and women. So again, you could argue there's a slight overrepresentation of blacks. I mean, we're 15% of the country entire, but we were also 15 out of this set of less than 60. Okay, we can talk about whether that's due to racism or crime rate. But I think if you ask the average person on the street, what's the total number of unarmed men, specifically black men, killed by the police in a year? They would say hundreds or thousands. That's not real. That's the result of this media culture of fear that people in the social sciences have been talking about since Glasner 2000. 
um, where we constantly see these things that are not real threats. I can name 10 just off the head. Young, young blonde child kidnapping, animal attacks, black on white crime, white on black crime, police brutality, you know, horrific explosions on the operating table, plane crashes, specifically Islamic terrorism outside of four specific cities, COVID-19 deaths for people under 55. I mean, it just goes on and on and on with this narrative of what is going to kill you, what's coming next. I will say I only got to eight, not 10, my bad. But I mean, if you watch the mainstream U.S. media, this is extremely common. And I think that the narrative around the police on one side, on the left, and frankly, around blacks on the other side, if you want to look at how the right sometimes presents these issues, has caused this conflict where you have people in the street fighting. And that's entirely unnecessary. None of this is real. If you look at interracial crime in the United States, uh, this is in the BJS report I mentioned, Bureau of Justice Statistics. Again, we know what that is. Violent black-right interracial crime is 5% of crime, in that there were 600,000 violent crimes involving whites and blacks in the most recent year on record, and there were 12 million crimes. Some years you get up to 20 million crimes. That doesn't excuse hate crimes on the white side or robberies on the black side, but it's just important to remember the person most actually likely to kill you is your ex-wife. There is not this massive, they're not warriors of the other race or dangerous animals like sharks and bears or whatever the media tells you lining up waiting to attack you. So I think that this false representation has a huge amount to do with this. So again, would I legalize drugs, nationalize elements of the healthcare system, try to equalize policing? Yeah, I think most fair-minded people would do at least some of those. But you also have to recognize that right now, the total number of casualties of the policing system that are unarmed, actually innocent minorities is 15. So, I mean, it's, it's not as though there's blood running in rivulets down the streets in the USA or anywhere else. Um, now, you can get into some broader questions. So, I mean, our police overall do kill hundreds of people every year. Why? As opposed to 15 in Britain. I mean, there are real questions there. But the idea that that is extraordinarily raced or the idea that this is in mostly unfair, illicit circumstances, I mean, again, there's there's no evidence for that. Yeah, I, I actually totally agree with you. And in fact, I just finished reading a very fascinating book by Bobby Duffy about the perils of perception, how we actually tend to perceive most of the things wrongly. It was a fascinating book where and it did cover things like crimes and what is your perception of crimes and stuff like that. But here's my last question before I let, let you go. So this is what I look at America as. When I look at America, I see, you know, there was a time when religion had a, a huge stranglehold on American thought in a larger way. And obviously, post-1960s, you had the challenge. And slowly but surely, I think with more and more secularism and uh, basically religion has been dealt a body blow in America. Even if you look at current surveys, I think I, I was talking to Michael Shermer in one of the podcasts and Michael Shermer told me that I think 25% of Americans are what you call nuns, right? They, they basically have no religious affiliation. Now, when I look at this as an outsider, I am I wrong to think that all this new woke religion, because it is absolutely a religion. I mean, to me, it looks like a religion. It's just Christianity without the God to me. I mean, there is an original sin over there. There is an original sin of privilege over here. There is there is blasphemy over there. There is blasphemy over here. I mean, it's so similar to me as an outsider who has read Christianity and who's reading this material. I was like, is there a crisis of meaning in a certain section of American society where people are basically self-flagellating because they've kind of run out of real issues? 
Yes. I mean, so what you're talking about, I'm not the most religious guy. I mean, like most urban, you know, upper middle class men, I'm sometimes conventionally pious. I mean, I go to church on Christmas and Easter as God intended, but I'm not a, a extraordinarily religious individual. That said, I think religion has a great deal of value in stabilized civil societies. I find this to be especially true for young men who have a natural inclination towards savagery across all races and countries. Um, and I think that we have seen a decline in meaningful religion, but I'll go beyond that as a political scientist. We've seen a decline in meaningful participation. Um, if you read the books like Putnam's Bowling Alone that have really come out of American political science, I'm an internationalist uh, in recent years, although that now more than a decade old, but I mean, you see that there's been a decline in military participation. I mean, everyone in most major nations used to have to spend two years in a barracks getting used to all of the other sorts of young men in their nation. Young women as well in recent years. That's no longer true in the USA, still isn't Israel, some other countries. You've seen a decline in varsity athletic participation. People are more focused on playing video games now among younger kids than going out there and getting kicked around on the pitch or the football field. You've seen a decline in bowling league participation. If you don't play in high school or the army, you probably won't later in life. Same thing for basketball, golf. I mean, you've seen a decline in young marriages. You've seen a decline in church, synagogue, mosque going. What you've seen is people withdrawing into some of these virtual worlds. Uh, and you can wonder about what the impact of diversity is on this or a changing business climate is on this, but it's a very definite thing you've seen. And once that happens, I think that radicalization becomes more common because in the virtual world, whether you're playing Second City or you're on Facebook and Twitter all day, or God forbid, you're one of the active anons on 4chan and 8chan and Reddit, I mean, you are able to completely silo yourself. If you're yeah. on 4chan Paul and then you switch to right wing Twitter and then you, you know, go into the gaming sphere and you're part of an organization of other young right leading men, you know, fighting in a world that doesn't exist and so on. And that's eight hours of your day. There's very little engagement with other people that'll challenge you, whether that's female dating partners or guys who just disagree with you or anybody else. So I think all of this, the decline in participation, the increase in virtual worlding, as it's been called, um, contributes to this sort of anomie. And I find that a lot of people want something to believe in. And the thing is, I mean, from, you know, the Bible to the Vedas or the Bhagavad Gita to the Talmud to the Greek myths, I mean, the Stoicism, there are a hundred traditions that you could cling to, again, especially as a young man, but really for anybody, not even sure why I said especially as a young man, really for anybody. But those are not what most people seem to be pursuing. Uh, the growth of the alt-right is an example of this, where people want to reify sort of the older culture in their society and their own racial heritage as a response to the feeling of meaninglessness. I think that that in many ways is an in-the-mirror counterpoint to the worst extremes of social justice, just with broke white guys. You see the social justice movement, which indeed does have an original sin, which I guess would be racism, which does have blasphemous, non-catechistic language, which has everything religious but modesty and forgiveness, actually. Um, yeah. So you've seen, you've seen a lot of these movements rise and swell for both of those, I mean, three, four, five thousand percent in size. And yeah, that has almost certainly something to do with the absence of real belonging with the lack of ability just to go down to the Masonic Lodge or to go to Temple or something like that and have an actual meaningful experience. The, the question that I have with that, of course, is why don't people just start going to the Masonic Lodge or down to Temple again? I mean, as exactly. I've been, yeah, that's, that's my recommendation if I had to give one to citizens. 
Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. So before we wrap things up, uh, Dr. Riley, uh, are there any new projects, any new books coming up that would you, uh, you'd like to tell us about? Well, sure. I mean, I've got a, um, this, uh, hey, thanks. I mean, this is my usual plug at the end of any interview. I have three books out right now, obviously, Taboo, 10 Facts You Can't Talk About, which looks at cancel culture and all the things you're not supposed to discuss, actually from Black Lives Matter to the alt-right uh, to, to uh, in a short passage, the transgender movement, so on. Not obviously comparing those three things, but everything that's uh, off the table at a dinner party. Um, I have Hate Crime Hoax before that, which looks at the, the wave of sort of Jussie Smollett, Covington Catholic, if you want to throw that in there, Erica Thomas, DC dreadlock cutting, et cetera, style incidents that we've seen in the USA and Britain in recent years. And I look at why we seem to be giving power to this idea of victimization. Uh, and I have a previous book, which is simply written from a scholarly perspective. It's essentially my graduate dissertation, but the $50 million question, which looks at why people value identities such as race and sexual orientation, religious faith tradition in the first place. Uh, in terms of new projects, I do a fair amount of writing for different sources. I mean, I'd expect to be back in commentary, quillet, spikes, uh, and so on before long. And I'm planning on writing a book about how to actually improve policing with a friend of mine, Maury Richards, who's a police chief. And I think that the combination of that quantitative perspective and his perspective, having been out there in the field, could be pretty useful. That might be more of a textbook style, academic style piece of work than, say, taboo. But that's the next one up. I'm also interested in writing a book called something like Flex about how we define identity. And it looks like I'll get a major publisher deal for this one. But I mean, right now we have seen the trans movement, obviously, which is people that consider themselves to be the opposite People who consider themselves to have a gender different from their biological sex, I think would be a simple and polite way of putting that. So individuals that are biologically male, but believe that they are, I won't say female, but women. And I look at what, I want to look at what that means and how without being jackasses on either side, this would actually work in society. I mean, for example, if you are a bio male and you identify as a woman, can you then play sports as a woman? Can you then not participate in our military draft? What are we going to do? So I'd like to discuss that. And then I'd like to go beyond that framework to newer movements that are on the horizon. Like, I don't see any logical reason that we won't soon recognize that people say they're transracial if people say they are transgender. I mean, we've seen a very large number of high profile people on the left, Rachel Dolezal, Elizabeth Warren, some would argue Sean King, who were presented as minority leaders and turned out to be Caucasian. So what is what is the logic behind that? I mean, are we just looking at, you know, individuals behaving aggressively in their personal life? Or can you say, I am a member of another race in the same way you can say I'm a member of another gender? And th this goes on and on. I mean, there are more than a million Americans that identify as other kid. Uh, this has become something of a dated term on the internet. They use different terms now, but that's someone who believes they're a non-human creature, whether that's a wolf, an elf, so on down the line. And if you Google other kin and get into the debate boards, this is taken quite seriously. So I'd be interested in writing something where I look at, not at, not at all mockingly, not really all that critically, but at the idea that you define what your identity is. What does that in practice mean? Can I say that I am 67 and so on? Um, and I think that there would be a pretty substantial market for that book because a lot of people in, again, that normal middle class are trying to figure out what these movements mean. Um, if you are, you know, a East Indian man, and you say you are a Caucasian woman, how should I interact with that? I think it's a fascinating question, and I would like to, I'd like to take a shot at answering it. But so yeah, those are, I, yeah, I okay. agree with you. That's fascinating. 
Yeah. So th those may be the next two books. And in the meantime, I mean, I would look in the journals or in an outlet like commentary for um, a fair number of articles. I try to write something every week or two. Yeah, th that sounds actually very interesting. And yeah, I kind of relate to it because right now, uh, uh, the only thing which is on the assaulted the most, if you ask me, is uh, what we would call in the good old days, the small, small T objective truth. Uh, I, I, it seems to me that there is no objectivity left in the discourse uh, at all. And everything is relative. Uh, so, yeah, I, I actually actually I'm looking forward to it. that would be something that I would buy and read myself because I've been grappling uh, with that myself. In, uh, and uh, I, I kind of don't understand that if there is no objective truth, then, uh, like you said, if I identify as a 70 year old person, uh, old guy, then am I eligible for social security when I'm at the age of 27, right? So, so how do we work these things out? So if, if we, if there are no objective truths, then how can we have our entire society functioning? So yeah, it sounds like a fascinating idea to me. Yeah. And not to, I mean, thank you for the comment. Right? I think it's useful in terms of some of the angles I might take, but I mean, one thing I will say is that, so I guess the, the answer to that is that there are are so this is my issue broadly with a lot of movements that are in the public space right now i would define myself as a modernist uh, i don't need the post um i am i'm uh, by background i obviously i identified as black i'm also of british irish and um native american heritage and one of the reasons that i am inclined to believe in scientific truth is the native american background i mean these were some of the greatest warriors and most spiritual people in history, but I think that their defeat pretty conclusively demonstrated that gunpowder is stronger than magic. So yeah. I, from a fairly early age, have been kind of interested in how gunpowder works. Now, I don't object at all to people putting a distinct black or East Indian or whatever spin on their presentation of how gunpowder works. You can design the weapon in different ways. Art is a beautiful thing, but you can't get around the point that gunpowder works. And I think that in the modern world, We've seen a lot of people attempting to present science itself as just another racialized, non-objective reality that some people happen to believe. And yeah. this, I think, is absolutely nonsensical. I mean, there's a reason why planes fly. And anyone who can calculate arcs of takeoff or the laws of gravity or whatever knows what it is. So for me, again, without any lack of sympathy toward individuals that feel that their race or gender is not what it might outwardly appear to be. I don't think it's especially difficult to say things like, you know, a male is an individual with a non-all XX chromosomal order, you know, an anally occluded prostate gland, a hyoid bone in the throat, then 99% of the time is equipped with, you know, penis and testicles. So the real question in the book would be to some extent, how do we know that fact and continue to believe and communicate that without falling into nonsense, but also without being cruel to other people. I think that is a valuable question. Yes. But at some level, we can't lose sight of the fact that a male is what I just defined it as. There's not a biology department in the world, probably, that behind closed doors would disagree with that. So the key question of the transgender movement isn't, are there a small number of people that are intersex? who we absolutely must treat with, you know, honor and respect? The answer to that is yes, sure. It's, I believe, 0.1% of human beings. The real question of the transgender movement is if I am uh, a biological male with, you know, a non-all XX chromosomal order and everything else I just described, penis, testicles, 
can I then choose to identify as a woman and compete in the 400 meter dash as a woman? That's what we're actually talking about, not some fringe theoretical idea. We in the business and military and scientific and so on communities and major nations have to be prepared to take on things like this. And when people aren't, it gets very ugly and very silly. Uh, in South Africa recently, there was a recorded video of someone at a scientific conference arguing for magic. Um, I, I'll, tr I'll try to look this up, but everyone, black and white, just sits there in stunned silence while someone says, well, this is just one of many traditions. You know, my Zosha ancestors used to believe that when you bring in a witch doctor, you can produce pretty much any result you want. I'm not exaggerating this at all, being mean to the South Africans. But if, at some point when you say, well, what problem do you have with my regression models? And someone else says, well, my witch doctor disagrees with them. You have to say, well, that's not a legitimate response. Sit down. And I think that normal citizens are going to get to the point where we're going to start saying that more and more very soon. You know, Dr. Riley, that, that's a perfect way to end the podcast, actually. I'm so looking forward to you writing this book because, yeah, as a sports fan, and you rightly brought up uh, that sports is a place where, I mean, I'm a mixed martial arts fan, and there was a famous case of Fallon Fox where uh, it was a case of uh, a, a male trying to, you know, uh, changing to a female and then going and competing, and they eventually had to stop that. So, yeah, I, I'm really looking forward to to. To this book where you can you know take the whole plethora of examples and you look into identity at a much deeper level so yeah dr riley thanks a lot for coming on the podcast thank you for having me all right guys you know the drill you can support me on youtube you know patreon you know everything what you're supposed to do subscribe like share the video i've added the details for the 17 uh, 1776 initiative that dr riley is part of and also the links to buy his books i would insist you check both of them out you buy his books you read it and i'll see you the next time until then namaste take care goodbye